Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. If you're a mom, especially want to say welcome to you. Glad to have you this morning. Um, excited as well to continue wrapping up our study in the book of Philippians. Uh, this week is our uh, very last week in, uh, in our study in Philippians, but uh, don't worry if you've been gone or uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, I'll catch you up before we uh, dive into the rest of the book here. So like we've been talking about from the beginning, Philippians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped plant about 10 years prior to writing the letter. And it's a letter that's full of encouragement and thankfulness and joyfulness because the reality is that since the very beginning, this body of believers, this church in Philippi has been characterized by a love for God and a desire for others to know him. They've been characterized, as we're going to see specifically this morning, by a sacrificial generosity with their finances. We've been, they've been characterized by faithfulness to the gospel and the word of God, and, and honestly, just a gratitude for Paul and his leadership and influence in their lives. And in fact, the reason why Paul's writing this letter to them now is because they sent somebody to go check on him in prison and to be able to provide for him, take care of him, whatever he needed. And so whenever Paul thinks about this church, he's encouraged, he's full of joy and thankfulness. And yet what you see as you read throughout the whole letter is that is that what Paul longs for very clearly in the midst of all the reasons he has to be encouraged by where this church is at spiritually and all that God's doing in them, what he longs for so clearly is that he wants them to keep growing up in their faith. There's this reality that they haven't arrived yet, that God's still at work in them. He begins the book by talking about how God's begun a good work that he that will kill, carry on to completion in them. And, and uh, what you see is that he wants the good news of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus to keep transforming their attitudes and actions and perspectives. And and, and so Paul urges us, instead of just uh, encouraging the Philippians and telling them, you're doing a great job, uh, he does that, but he as well, he urges us to keep pressing into the work God wants to do in us, knowing that God's not done transforming us yet. And as we studied the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 of the last couple of weeks, what we saw was that, is that having an eternal mindset is central, critical. It's one of the keys to actually being able to to increasingly keep growing up in our faith and to, and to, and to doing that. But we also saw as well is that, it, is that it's the key to being able to stand firm in our faith. And you see, when we see life through all of life through the lens of eternity, what happens is it reframes our view of ourselves and of others and of our situations and of our circumstances. And what it does is it enables us to approach those things with Jesus's perspective with his attitude, with his posture, with his eyes, and to be characterized by a kind of joyful confidence and peace that comes from clinging to the promise that Jesus is God who is sovereign and who is near to us, both now and forever. And so that we can have hope and confidence whether we're in good times or in bad times. And, and that brings us to our passage this morning. And as we wrap up the book of Philippians and Paul's letter this morning, what we're going to see him doing is closing up this letter by thanking this church and thanking the believers uh, who sent Epaphroditus. To, he's basically thanking them for taking care of him and for giving and for supporting not only the work of his ministry, but just taking care of him while he's in prison but in the midst of him saying thank you to them and expressing his gratitude for their generosity and concern for him, what we're actually going to see Paul doing is doubling down on the reality that his joyful confidence in the midst of the roller coaster of life and ministry that he is on is it's not, it doesn't come from relying on their resources. 
It comes from relying on God's resources. And he is full of gratitude for all of that they've done to take care of him and to show their concern for him. But he wants them to know that the thing that is the, the, the thing that keeps him even, the thing that allows him to have joy in the midst of every circumstance isn't their resources, it's God's. It's God's resources made known to him. And so what I want to show you this morning as we study is that, is that when we're characterized by depending on God and his resources, what gets produced in us is both a deep contentedness, but also a sacrificial generosity. When we're characterized by relying on God and his resources, what gets produced in us is deep contentedness and sacrificial generosity. So that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into our passage this morning. God, thanks so much for our time together and our time in your word. And God, we just come humbly asking that you'd be gracious to speak to us uh, through it again this morning. God, um, and I just feel, God, I'm just not as prepared as I need to be this morning, if I'm honest, and, and I need you to be shaping our time in your word. And so, God, I ask that, like, because our time relies on you and not on me, that this will be fruitful and good for us and for, and for you and for your glory, and we just need you, God. And so we ask that you'd be gracious to, uh, to speak through your word to us and to produce in us, uh, as we respond to you, both a deep contentedness and a radical sacrificial generosity. And so we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, like I said, we're uh, wrapping up Paul's letter. We're in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23 this morning. It begins this way. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. For indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every and, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, but I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment. I have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. And all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. All right, so just to frame a little bit about what's going on in our passage this morning, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church from a prison in Rome. And really, the kind of prison he's, he's kind of under house arrest, and he's currently chained to a Roman guard awaiting trial and the possibility of a death sentence. And, 
And when the Philippians hear about this, what happens is they send Epaphroditus. He's one of their leaders. And they send him on this long, treacherous journey to go check on Paul and bring him some financial support. And some of you are thinking, uh, wait a minute, like why, why would Paul need financial support in prison? It's like, isn't that kind of like, doesn't he kind of have stuff figured out? Like, it's not great accommodations, but like, he's got something figured out at least. Like, why does he need financial support? And Believe it or not, in, in ancient Rome, friends and family and humanitarians were the ones who took care of prisoners and provided for their basic needs like food and, and clothing because the prison system did not do that, right? And so without the support of people like Epaphroditus and the financial resources that he brought from the church in Philippi, Paul wouldn't have really had any way to take care of himself and to provide for his basic needs. And, and so when he receives this gift that Epaphroditus brings on behalf of the Philippian church, and, and honestly just the blessing of his company and like a friend to be with you in the midst of a situation like that, what he sees is that Paul's not just grateful, he, he's really encouraged. He says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He has in verse 14, he says, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Basically, uh, he's saying, guys, thank you for showing me how much you care. Thanks for showing that. It means a lot. And I really resonate with Paul's gratitude and thankfulness here. You see, because the reality is that it's one thing to tell people that you care about them, and it's another to show that care and concern. And I know uh, ever since I broke my leg a number of weeks ago, I have been so, my, my family and I have been so blessed by the countless numbers of you who have reached out to us and to ask, how can you help? How can you serve? How can you care for us? And you've brought meals to us, or you've, or you've Ubered me around to various meetings, or you showed up way earlier than you needed to to bring me to church on a Sunday morning, or whatever it might be. And I'm so grateful for the ways that, that you guys have cared for me and for my family in the midst of this season. And I just want you to know, like Paul does, it means a lot. I'm really grateful and really thankful for that. It's been an encouragement. And so like, like me, Paul wants the Philippians to know how thankful he is for their concern and support. He wants them to know how grateful he is. But what he also wants to make clear to them is that it's not their support and their resources that are the basis for his joy. It's not their support and their resources that are the basis for his joy and his peace in the midst of all the things he's facing. He says, goes on in verse 11 to say, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And in saying that, what Paul's not trying to do is he's not trying to say like, oh, guys, you shouldn't have, right? And he, as well, he's not trying to hide from them how bad the situation he is in. Like, he, he's not trying to mask it and be like, I don't want you guys to worry about me. Things are really doing great. I'm really fine. I didn't need anything, right? That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is he's saying, listen, guys, I'm really grateful for you and the gift that you sent showing your concern for me. I really am. But I need you to know that even if you hadn't sent it, I would still be okay. I'd still have joy. I would still have peace. He says, I have learned how to be content, whatever the circumstances. 
The word content is actually um, a combination of, of two words in the original language, one that means self and one that means satisfied or sufficient, right? So Paul's saying, I've learned how to be self-satisfied or self-sufficient. In other words, contentment is about this peace. It, it, it looks like it's about having a peace with what you have. It's the opposite of coveting. It's the opposite of endlessly longing after things and situations that you don't have. It's about being okay when things are not okay. There's this old Puritan minister named Jeremiah Burroughs. He, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in that book, he, he defines contentment this way. And I think it's just like a really great way to look at what contentment is that lines up with our passage and with what the rest of Scripture has to say. But he describes it this way. He says, contentment is this sweet, inward, quiet, and gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It is a sweet and inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You see, and I think when we think about that kind of a definition, it's really good for our hearts to wrestle with that. Because I think a lot of times what happens is we connect contentment with circumstances. We connect contentment with how well things are going in our lives. We connect contentment with our relative uh, lack of burdens or our, our, our perception of comfort in our own lives or approval or acceptance from others. And, and what you see in that definition is this healthy reminder that our contentment isn't really, con true contentment doesn't really have to do with your circumstances. In fact, it has to do with freely submitting and delighting in God's wise disposal, his wise leadership in the midst of any conditions. But I think as well what that definition does is it actually helps us to understand what contentment isn't as well. And this is really important because I think sometimes uh, when we look at contentment, we can have like this hyper-spiritual view where it's just like somebody who's content doesn't have any worries in life. Somebody who's content like is just utterly at peace with everything. They're just totally serene in every circumstance. And if you read Paul's letters, that's not even what he says about himself. And he says that he's content. So that's not what the definition is, right? You see, when he talks about, when Burroughs talks about it, he says that true contentment is this inward frame of spirit, right? Contentment is not merely an external putting on like a good face and just being like, yeah, things are great, even if I'm dying inside, right? Like, that's not what contentment is. It's not just an external putting on a good face that like shows to everybody else like things are going to be fine, uh, even though if you're dying inside. That's, that's not what's going on. It's this internal reality that is expressed externally as peace and joy in the midst of good times and bad. But it's so important you see as well is that true contentment is it's not the result of ignorance. Right? It's not just ignoring the difficulty of our situations or just endlessly trying to find the good in bad situations, right? Bro says it's this inward peace, <coughs> excuse me, that comes from freely submitting and delighting in God's fatherly disposal in every condition. He says it's a posture. It's a posture that acknowledges the reality of hardship and difficulty, but that says, I know that God is a good father who loves me and longs for my good and who would not keep something good from me. I know that that is true, and that I can trust and hope in him. 
You see, and so true contentment is it's not an external show or a result of ignorance. But last thing as well, true contentment is also not a result of apathy. Contentment isn't just like resigning yourself to the idea that things won't ever change. That, that's, that's not what contentment is. That's just like giving up, right? And that, that's very different. You see, contentment isn't giving up or giving in, just saying like, I guess things will never get better. I got to come to terms with it. We see Paul himself in his letters begging God, pleading with God that he would change his circumstances and that he would alleviate some of the difficulties that he is going through. He's actively asking God to change his situation. So, so contentment is not just saying like, well, I guess whatever happened happens. I guess I'm good doesn't mean that we can't ask God to change our situations and circumstances. But being content doesn't mean that you have to be okay with everything staying the same. It means that you're able to have joy and peace even if they do. You're able to have joy and peace even if things do stay the same. And what Paul says is the rest of the passage, he says, I've learned how to have that kind of a contentment in every situation. He goes on in verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. As you look at Paul's life, what you see is that he learned contentment over time. Contentment is learned. It's not, a, it's not an instant thing. We, I think we would all love to just instantly be like, oh, tomorrow I could be content. It'll just change. But contentment happens, it's a process that we learn and it's a process that happens over time. And part of that process is by going through difficult things. It's clear, you look at Paul's life, he went through some stuff. He went through some difficult situations. You read 2 Corinthians 11 and you see that, it says it this way, he's describing the difficult situations he's faced in life. He says it this way, he says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day on open sea. I've been constantly on the move in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the pressures of my daily concern for all the churches. Paul's saying, I learned how to be content in the weeds, in the difficult things in life. But what you can't miss is that he also says, I learned how to be content in the midst of plenty. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems very counterintuitive to me, right? It seems like uh, you get the learning to be content in the lack, in the need. You're like, get that, totally makes sense, right? That's, that's hard. Those situations are difficult. But why would you need to, lean, to learn contentedness in plenty and in abundance, right? Right? Being content when everything is going well seems like that's just like the natural result. Like, should, like isn't, that, isn't that what that is, right? But Paul says, no, you have to learn how to be content when all is well, because here's the reality. The desire for more is a desire that never ends. Stories often told about the reporter who asked billionaire Nelson Rockefeller how much money it takes to be happy. He famously responded, just a little bit more. 
Like Rockefeller, we often feel like we need just a little bit more. We think, man, if only I had the boyfriend or girlfriend I was looking for, if only we were engaged, if only the wedding was finally here, if only we had kids, if only I had a job or a house, if if only we had grandkids, if only we were retired, there's always something more. One pastor refers to this as the, the cult of the next thing. Says it's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing it, but by failing to resist it. The never ending message of the cult of the next things is crave and spend and buy, for the kingdom of stuff is here. See, the reality is that instead of being satisfied with what we have, we are always craving for something more. We're always craving for something more. Paul knew that temptation well. He came from money. He came from prestige. He came from influence and the good life. And even after he had given all of that stuff up to follow Jesus and to be sent by him as a missionary around the world, what you see is that the very first person that he meets when he comes to Philippi, and the the place where he does ministry for probably about a year out of the city of Philippi, is a, a lady named Lydia. She was a wildly wealthy businesswoman. And, she, and basically, she plays host to Paul and the crew that's doing ministry out of there. And so Paul, while he's in Philippi, like he is living the good life. After years of difficulty in ministry on the road, he was staying in the lap of luxury, doing ministry out of her home. And yet what you see is that he was able to leave all of that behind. He moves on. He's not stuck there like, oh, Maybe we could raise up some other people to go off to Thessalonica, right? Like, I really like it here in Philippi. No, he he continues to go. He was able to leave all that behind and continue on to a path of life and ministry that would repeatedly lead him towards difficulty and even prison because it wasn't his circumstances that were the source of his contentment. See, that leads us to what Paul refers to as the secret of contentment, right? Stoic philosophers in in Paul's day, they regarded contentment as the highest virtue. The idea that you could be detached from outward circumstances and have kind of all the resources in yourself to to meet every situation. But what Paul says is is that you can't actually have true contentment in spite of your circumstances on your own. You can't actually do that on your own. He says it takes a miracle of divine strength. You see, the the key to Paul's contentment, the key to his self-sufficiency, his self-satisfaction, was actually a radical God dependency. He goes on in verse 13, he says, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. He says, I can be in plenty and in lack. I can be in the midst of hunger and in the midst of plenty. I can go through all of these situations. I can do all of that, not in my own strength, because of him who gives me strength. This verse is like one of the ultimately misquoted verses in all of the Bible, right? And people use it. They use Philippians 4.13 as like this, like, God will empower me to do anything difficult in my life. I can accomplish whatever it is if I just trust in him. That's not, like, verse 4, like, Philippians 4.13 is not about success. It's about endurance. Paul says, I can endure all of those things. I can walk through the midst of difficulty. I can walk through the midst of plenty because what I know is that Jesus is with me. It's his strength in me that enables me to endure, not to accomplish to endure in the midst of good, in the midst of, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of, in the midst of strengths. 
He goes on in verse 19 to add this. He says, I know that God will meet all your needs, his needs included, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, contentment is not about being satisfied with the, is not about being satisfied in the gifts. It's about being satisfied by the giver himself. That's at the root of what contentment is about. That's why Paul is able to be in the midst of lack and still have joy and peace and contentment because the giver is the one who he's satisfied with. And that's why the reason why in the midst of plenty and abundance, he can, be set, he can leave all of it behind because what he's satisfied in is the giver, not the gifts. You see, what Paul gets is that Jesus is not merely the means to an end. He is the means and the end himself. That he empowers us to be satisfied by him. He enables us to see him as the thing that really satisfies and that really gives life, that really fulfills, that really fills the need in our heart. He enables us to be full of him. And when you have him to realize that, you don't, that he is what you really need. You see, when we come to Jesus, we receive forgiveness of our sins through his death and his resurrection, and we get the promise of eternal life with him, and we receive the promise that he's never going to leave us or forsake us, and that he will help us through all of the trials in life, that he is always with us. What you see is that when you have Jesus, you have all you need. One commentator put it this way. He said, experiencing Christ as more valuable and more satisfying than anything in this world is the secret of contentment in plenty and hunger. Experiencing Christ as more valuable and satisfying than anything in the world is the secret to contentment in plenty and hunger. It's not just knowing that, it's experiencing it. You see, and what Paul says is what happens when you get that, when you experience the satisfying fullness of Jesus, when you see that he is the thing that you need that enables you to endure plenty and lack, what happens is that you'll not just be content, but that your contentedness in God will overflow out of you in a sacrificial generosity. It is the natural result when we are content in God, what happens is what overflows out of us is sacrificial generosity. You see, Paul's not writing to the Philippians about contentedness in every situation because they don't understand it. He's not writing to them like, you guys don't know what this is about at all, so I need to help you, I need to tell you because you're messing up. No, if anything, it's a reminder to them because they've shown since the very beginning that they get this. Paul says it this way, verse 15, moreover, you know that in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, he says, since the beginning, since you became Christians, since you found out who Jesus was and all that he's done, since the very beginning, he says, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, that's just the very next town over, it says, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. You see, the gift that they sent with Epaphroditus, that wasn't the first time that they had sacrificially given so that the gospel could go forth. They had been doing it from the very beginning. 
And not just out of their abundance, but in the midst of their lack. Paul writes about these Macedonian churches. Or he writes about Philippi, the church here in 2 Corinthians 8. This way he says, In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and beyond entirely on their own they urgently pleaded us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the lord's people and they exceeded our expectations they gave themselves first of all to the lord and then by the will of god also to us you see what paul's saying is that in response to the gospel and the message about all that god had given them what happens is they give themselves back to god wholeheartedly They were content in him, not in their circumstances. It says says, in the midst of their severe trial and extreme poverty, they overflowed with joy that welled up in generosity. There is so much about that sentence that doesn't make sense. It's credible. You see, out of their overflow of their joy in the Lord, what, what came out of them was a sacrificial generosity towards the work of his kingdom, and not just once. Over and over and over again, what you see is that the Philippian church was characterized by sacrificial generosity. It wasn't a drive-by act of kindness, right? Their gift they sent to Paul wasn't like a, ah, we got him off our back, right? It was what they were characterized by. And you need to see this as well. It, it wasn't, it, it, their, their pattern of generosity was not something that they were using to try to get something from Paul or from God, but because they knew they had already been given everything they needed. That's why Paul says that their gift is a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice that's pleasing to God. Right? God sees the heart. He knows exactly why we do the things that we do. Right? And if, if their motives were like, oh, we're trying to manipulate Paul so he'll spend some more time with us. We're trying to get God to get on our good side. Right? God would not look at that as a pleasing sacrifice. Right? That's manipulation. That's not worship. You see, but that's not the reality. For them, it was worship. Their generosity, their sacrificial generosity was not an attempt at manipulation. It was a response to and an outworking of being grateful for, for the gospel and being content in Christ. Church, here's the the reality. Generosity is one of the best indicators of our contentedness in Christ. Generosity is just one of the best indicators of our contentedness in Christ. If you are not content in Christ, you you will hoard your money and your time and your resources because you will need those things to be at peace. You will need those things to have joy. But if you're content in him, what happens is those things are not capital N needs. They become tools that you get to use for God's kingdom and his purposes. And so you're free to give and you're free to be characterized by generosity. The more you feel secure and satisfied because of Jesus, the more you'll be characterized by generosity. And here's the, here's the crazy thing, is that it's actually a circular thing. Because our contentedness in God, it leads to generosity. But what, what even secular studies show is that generosity leads to, to joy. Leads back around. It circles back around. 
Right? In, the, in the book, The Paradox of Generosity, the authors look at a bunch of data and studies on generosity, and what they find is, is not a, 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 what they find was not just a corollary relationship between generosity and joy, what they find was a causal relationship between generosity and joy. And there's way more here than I have time to go into, but that reality shouldn't surprise us at all. It should not surprise us at all that there is a causal relationship between sacrificial generosity and joy because God is the one who designed us and that's what he's like. That's what he is like. And we're made in his image. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says it this way. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. God is the most joyful being in all of the universe, and yet he is the most sacrificially generous of all. If we're made in his image, it should come as no surprise that when we reflect his sacrificial generosity towards us, it brings about joy. That shouldn't be a surprise. You see, and it's the good news of God's sacrificial generosity towards us that we're remembering every week when we take communion. Reminding ourselves that he, in the midst of his riches, gave it up for us so that you and I might become rich in him And what we're remembering and celebrating is that we have life because of him that we didn't have before. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible's clear that faith in Jesus alone does that. It said communion is a chance for us to remember to remind ourselves that Jesus is the thing that satisfies, that he is the that he, in fact that he died so that you and I might actually be able to be satisfied in him. And so our time in communion is about worship. It's a chance for us to remember that he's the thing we're looking for, that he's the thing that gives life, that he's the thing that enables us to have joy and peace in the midst of any and every circumstance, and that it's his death on our behalf, his life lived for us that gives us that chance. And so if you've trusted Jesus and followed him, if he is the source of your joy, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus and, and what you're realizing is that you're looking to something or someone else to be your ultimate joy, then I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that, that trusts in him completely and that looks to him for everything. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. We live in the midst of a world and at a time where we have more money and more time and more access to things and experiences than ever before and all kinds of ways that we can pursue contentedness. And when you look at the data and when you look at the studies, what you find is that people are not happier. They are not more content. What you find is across the board, across the world, wherever you go, people are discontent and ungenerous. Because the only more that can ever satisfy is God himself. The only thing you can get more of that really satisfies is God himself. And church, your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers, they need to see 
what it looks like to have joy that is not rooted in circumstances, to have peace that is not the result of things going your way, to be satisfied even in the midst of lack. Because what that reveals is that there is something underneath all of those things that, you're re- that they're really after. And it's not just your own joy that you're looking for in the midst of finding satisfaction in Jesus. It's the good of others. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we close, what have you been looking to for contentment? Where is it that you go for a sense of peace and joy in the midst of your circumstances? What is it that you look to? Ask God to give you eyes to see it and to ask him to help you to see how Jesus is the thing that you are really looking for. Ask him to empower you to endure the difficult and to see past the good to the best in him and to what really satisfies and gives life, not just so that you might have joy in the midst of your circumstances, but so that your friends and your neighbors and your family and your coworkers might see the one thing that really gives life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you humbly this morning in the midst of our lack of content, in the midst of our longing for things and situations we do not have or a desire to escape where we are. God, we come to you in the midst of it and we say, Jesus, we need you and your strength to be the thing that fills us up. God, we need you to give us the strength that we need to endure because we have a hope that comes from being satisfied by you. God, help us to see the situations and circumstances we are in as part of your good fatherly will in the midst of our lives. And help us not just to have an external good face, but to have a deep inward peace that comes from you. Help us to live that out in the midst of our plenty, in the midst of our lack, so that our friends and our families and our neighbors, that they might come to know and love and follow and see you as the one thing that really satisfies, we pray.